this is a very, very well-known story from the Gospels, isn't it? John chapter 8, where this woman is caught in adultery, in the act of adultery, and dragged before Jesus. And uh, what do we make of it? Why is it here? You might notice if you look in your Bibles, it might say, uh, it might be in italics, or there might be a footnote saying, in some of the original, man, many of the, the earliest manuscripts we have, this passage doesn't appear. Yeah. Uh, so uh, there, are, there is some debate about when this passage arrived in the text of John's Gospel. We don't have the very first text that was written. We have copies of John's Gospel coming back from like 50 years later and fragments and bits. And it's remarkably accurate what we can know. But some people think maybe this possibly wasn't in the very first original one. I'm not convinced uh, it is here. And for you know, 2,000 years, we found it incredibly helpful. And the reason it's incredibly helpful is it, it shows Jesus to be masterful in dealing with a very simple question, but a very profound question. And uh, the question is this. Uh, the question is this. Um, uh, how, how do we uh, deal with evil in us? That's the question that this passage will actually help us address. How do we deal with evil, with wrong in us? And uh, you might say, well, hang on, how does, I'm not a woman caught in adultery. What does this have to do with me? Well, let me, let's think a little bit about what's going on here. The religious and legal leaders of Israel at the time were trying to, trying to trap Jesus. And it just so happened that they came across a woman who'd been caught in the act of adultery. The text is really specific. So that, I mean, there's no debate about her guilt. But can you imagine the shame for her? I mean, oh my goodness, that's just awful. But what you don't know is where the bloke was, right? So there's a big question there. So where's, where's Mr. Adulterer? Um, well, he was obviously a fast runner. Maybe. But actually, what we know from the history books is by the time that this happened, uh, stoning was not a regularly, in, in spite of what Monty Python and the life of Brian would indicate, a stoning was not, reg this was not regularly carried out in urban centers at all. Most people had worked out this, this you, were, you couldn't do this. And they'd worked out you couldn't do this because the Romans, who were the occupying force in Israel at the time, uh, they had banned the Jews from carrying out the death penalty. The Romans preserved for themselves the right to execute people. You could do whatever else you like to them, but you couldn't execute them. That's why Jesus had to be tried and sentenced by Roman authorities. So whenever anyone says the Jews killed Jesus, you go, no, no, it was the Italians. Um, <laughs> That was on my script. Well, sort of. Everything's scripted, sort of. Um, so the Romans preserved the right of the death. So we don't think this happened very often. 
and we think they went. I would say if I were to recreate this, I think this woman was caught in the act of adultery and the man was probably connected to some of the hierarchy. And so they just nudge, nudge, wink, wink. Maybe he paid them off and he just got let off. And the, the rulers went, ha, we can, we can trap Jesus here. And the trap is this. They bring this woman to Jesus and they say, there's no doubt about her guilt. And according to the scriptures, according to Deuteronomy and Moses, if a man is found sleeping with another man's wife, both the man who slept with her and the woman must die. So Bronze Age sexual ethics uh, that in its day were incredibly egalitarian and good for women, because in most other cultures that have existed before then and even today, if a man and a woman commit adultery, who gets killed? The woman. And it's quite radical. And it was certainly radical when Deuteronomy is written that both of them get killed. Now, it seems a bit awful to us. Stoning is not a commonly accepted uh, punishment for adultery. But what they do with Jesus is they say, hey, Jesus, we've caught this woman. Everybody saw her. There's no, no doubt about it. Now, what, what are you going to do? What do you say we should do? Okay. If Jesus says, just let her go, then they'll say to him, you are a heretic who is denying Moses, denying the law, and you are putting a whole uh, ethno-religion under threat. Okay, so, so they'll put an end to Jesus that way. If, on the other hand, he goes, bring on the stones, let's obey Deuteronomy 22, uh, let's stone her, what do you think would happen then? Remember what I just said about the Romans? The Romans will be after him. I mean, they were in the end, but they were like, okay, so no matter what he does, Jesus is caught in this trap. And they think, oh, we've got it. And then Jesus, being the smartest human being who's ever lived and understanding exactly what's going on in everyone's hearts, decides, well, this is a wonderful opportunity to uh, avoid the trap. And as he avoids the trap, to show us how to do this. You see, the point of this, of stoning the woman, was what? What's the, what's the goal of stoning the man and the woman in Deuteronomy 22? Sorry, what was that? Purge the evil. That's the issue. How do you deal with evil in a community? Okay, so that's now. Is that still relevant today? Like, how do you deal with evil? How do you deal with people who do stuff that's wrong and damaging? Oh, that's fascinating, right? So you can, you can deny it, you can minimize it, but how do we do it? Right, there's, here's, here's a very common temptation, isn't it? Um, the most common way to deal with evil in a community is to externalize it and locate it in someone else and then punish it in that other person. Right, that's what we do. We ex there's evil, but it's not us. It's not me. It's you. It's, it's you who are the sinner. And if I can find somebody else, it's your fault. It's your ethnic group. 
your religious group, your whatever it is, it's you who are the problem. So we make other people the problem and we locate the evil in them. And then if we can punish it in them, we can somehow all uh, feel that we as a society and are cleansed and pure. Now, of course, that doesn't really work that well, does it? And, and I'll tell you why, because did Israel's strategy of stoning people who committed sexual sin, did it actually deal with evil in Israel? Let me give you a hint. No. This was written, these laws they got, maybe a thousand, so they'd had a thousand years of being told that this is going to purge evil. And then they still could just find a woman who'd committed adultery and drag her forward. So it, it clearly hadn't worked. It doesn't work to just go, I will punish evil in you. I will deal with it in you. It, the law externally constraining our behavior is a good thing. Like, it's great to have consequences. I love the fact that we have a state and we have rules that mean if you try and kill me, uh, you'll end up in jail. That's fantastic. I love the fact that there are, there are rules and laws and it's awesome. But even in our legal system, have we managed to purge evil from our culture? And we've got a great justice system. No, hasn't worked. Okay, let me ask you another question. Um, let's not just think about adulterers and murderers and rapists and genocidal maniacs out there. In your own relationships, have you managed to purge evil from any of your relationships? By which I, yeah, that's by which I mean, is there anyone here who is in a relationship that has never been ruptured, that has never experienced disappointment, that is where you've never hurt the other person? No. We've just finished Circle of Security Parenting Program, which is phenomenal and everybody should do it, even if you don't have kids. It's just brilliant, okay? In Circle, there's a whole bunch of stuff on how do you deal with ruptures? Because even parenting little kids who you love and you would give your life for, or at least you give your partner's life for. You rupture, you hurt them, you damage them out of your own selfishness, your own laziness, your own lack of awareness, your own tiredness, your own stuff. So every relationship, so somehow we have spectacularly failed to purge evil from our society, from our relationships. Let me ask you another question. How many of us have managed to purge evil from our own hearts. The greatest evil I had in my heart was pride. But now I've removed that. Uh, my humility is extraordinary. It's, I used to really struggle, but now. <laughs> Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in a very, very famous line, he was a, a, a living in Soviet Russia, a dissident, he ended up in the Russian gulags. He wrote a book called The Gulag Archipelago that was enormously influential in dismantling Soviet Union because the, his writings got out into the, into the Soviet people 
And they actually started to face up to what was going on and the rest of the world understood what was going on. And in the Gulag Archipelago, Solzhenitsyn says the thing he learned in, that, in, the, in, the, in the Gulags was that the line between good and evil does not run between nation states or between cultures or between people, but the line between good and evil runs straight through every human heart. Okay, so that's the thing. So the purging of evil, purging the evil from Israel, requires something far greater than scaling up the adherence to law with greater consequences. So you can't do it externally. You can limit evil. You can punish evil. But you can't purge evil. You can't get it out because it's deeply embedded inside each and every one of us. Oh, and you know that. And I know that, but it's deeply uncomfortable. So I try to deal with it in all kinds of ways, mostly by seeing the evil in you, which is much more psychologically tolerable for me. I find it much easier to see your evil and then try very hard to purge you of your evil. And there's a lot of movement in our culture that are aimed at purging evil in other people. And often the people who are most committed to the purging of evil in others uh, are not averse to committing great evil in the attempt to purge evil from others. Let me give you an example. The Pharisees and the rulers of the law in Jesus' day were very committed to living pure lives and getting rid of evil from Israel. They were terrified that if, Isra if Israel continued to be shaped by evil, God might kick them out of the promised land. They'd come out of judgment. So they were very committed to the task of purging Israel from evil. And where did that lead them to? It led them to using a vulnerable, shamed woman in their Machiavellian plot to destroy the greatest teacher in the land. That's where it got them. We'll purge evil out there. And in the doing of it, they commit great evil themselves. Isn't that true in so many ways of any utopian, progressive, or religious cultural movement? Here, let me give you an example. M Marxist socialism. Okay, Marxism says, we will, the great evil in the world, in the 20th century, we saw the great evil as Marx identified it, it was the uh, alienation of the working class from the means of production which dehumanizes them. And the way forward was that the working class would rise up against the bourgeois and, uh, and they would bring in a utopian paradise uh, where, where the evil of inequality and poverty was once and for all removed. Okay, that's the, that's the promise. We'll purge evil through the historical outworking uh, of the dialectic uh, and the power relationships between working class and bourgeois, and they'll fight against each other, and then we'll get rid of poverty, we'll get rid of evil, and we'll bring in utopia. Okay. How many people had to die 
to accomplish that utopian vision. Tens and tens of millions of the poor and the vulnerable died because you can't purge evil through utopian progressive social engineering because the evil is in here. George Orwell, Animal Farm. You just discover that some animals are more equal than others. You can, any time there's any political or social movement that promises a utopian ideal where all evil is removed, just brace yourself for the amount of evil that is going to be enacted against the weak and the vulnerable in the path of that journey to utopia. The sexual revolution. The great evil that was identified in the 1960s was repressive, patriarchal, misogynistic control over women and the repression of people's innately pure sexual desires. And the great liberation that is offered is we can break the nexus between uh, copulation and reproduction. And we'll be free. We'll have dealt with this evil and love will triumph and love will conquer everything if we just get rid of the constraints of biology and the constraints of theology. And then you're free to express your deeper sexual desires. Now, how's that work for us? Man, like 70 years later, how many countless women have been sacrificed on the altar of a sex-obsessed, pornified culture? Who's won through the sexual revolution? Powerful men. Because now they don't have to take responsibility. And if the, and if the contraception doesn't work, then who pays the price? It's not the men. You break the connection between uh, sex and reproduction, and then the men don't have to stick around, and they don't. And then the women who end up trading sex for love don't have a man who'll stick around to help with the responsibility of raising the kid. And so the great freedom that was promised the purging of the evil of constraints and limits turns out to be deeply oppressive. Do you know why? Because the problem, the evil's in here. And then who pays the price? The weak and the vulnerable, the women who choose to have abortions, the women who are left raising kids without men and a generation of fatherless men. And then the young women today who are growing up in a thoroughly pornified culture with horrendous incidents of uh, sexual assault and misogyny and mistreatment and a bunch of people who are so sexually messed up because everything they've learned about sex, they've learned from screens and from pornography where, uh, you know, online, I mean, pornography is just a cesspool of human trafficking and violating women. So anytime anyone says, we've got this idea that is going to remove evil and set us all free, if only everyone just gets on board with the program, that is a recipe for long-term oppression and destruction of humanity because the evil is inside each and every one of us. And I tell you, 10 times out of 10, the people who are leading that progressive utopian drive are not owning their own evil. So that's the introduction.
I've set the scene. Are you all awake? Um, okay, so this is the question. So you go, Mark, what do I do with the evil in me? Well, you've got to understand, um, uh, you've got to understand that when you come to church, you're going to think and be challenged and have to learn a lot of stuff. And I'm going to cover a lot of stuff. So uh, forgive me. And it could take a while. There's, I, I want to do two things. You've got to understand the nature of humanity and how Jesus treats us. Okay. Um, and uh, this is, I've done this before occasionally. You can understand how we think about humanity in four quadrants. Um, on this quadrant is our, uh, as it were, essential nature. And on this quadrant, on this axis, sorry, is um, our moral nature, as it were. Uh, and uh, on our essential nature, this is um, bad and good. And here, uh, we're morally bad and we're morally good. Okay, do you see how this works? And you can map how we think of humans and how different religions and philosophies understand what people are. So there are some in our world who think we are essentially bad and morally bad. They are the nihilists. These are people who go metaphysically, our essential nature, we've just, we've evolved from nothing. We're just dust. We're just worms. We've come from nothing. We'll go to nothing. We are, have no ultimate significance. And we're also morally terrible beings. And so you see this in some of the existentialist and the nihilist writings. Uh, you see this in a movement, um, antinatalism, the people who say, and there's a philosophical movement that says, ethically, we should not reproduce. The only good thing to do is not have kids because we're bad. We're bad moral actors. We're destroying the world. We're a virus. We're a plague on the environment. You see this in various forms of the extreme environmental movement. Should we have a discussion about the utopian progressive idealism of the extreme environmental movement and how many millions are going to be killed in, in executing that? Well, we could do that. Um, but you can, it's the same structure of analysis you can apply to that. And at, this, at the extreme of that movement, it's driven by the nihilistic view of humankind. We're, we're, we're essentially bad and we're morally bad, okay? So th thankfully, that's a small group of people. Um, now, uh, then there's a group of people who say, well, um, uh, we are uh, essentially good. So we're essentially good and we are morally good. And this is the, this is the um, idealistic humanists or uh, the influencers. These are people who say, we're all precious. We're all wonderful. We're all unique. We're all great beings. And we're essentially good. We're, 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 we're just... We're just harmed and limited by the environment. Jean-Jacques Rousseau is the great-grandfather of all of these. Man is born free, but everywhere in chains was his great cry. So you're good. The problem is what your mum did to you or what your primary school teacher did to you or what the politicians did to you or what the priests did to you. But you're essentially good. And if each of us is just left to our own devices, we will live in some utopian paradise because it's, our nature is good and wonderful and dignified and morally, this is what we're like. Can I get an amen to that?
no, it's, it's, um, that's, that's really not, that's not great either. Um, and then you have, uh, this, call them why, and this is modern paganism. which is the most common religion in our day. And modern, modern paganism says this, you and I are evolved from nothing. Our lives, we are metaphysically and essentially nothing. Like we're just a collection of atoms brought together with no, no essential value. And, and we see this in all sorts of ways. People's lives are cheap and expendable at the beginning of life and at the end of life. Uh, there's no real value, but on the other hand, we are morally beautiful, extraordinary, exquisite beings where we, you, you can't criticize anyone, but actually at the same time, we have no real dignity. We, we come from nowhere. We're going home to nowhere. And in the middle, we really aren't much, but we're still wonderful and capable of freedom and beauty and truth and glory and justice. And, and that's why, by the way, this is the, the, the worldview of, I was, the Catholic philosopher Peter Kreef calls this modern paganism, and it's the dominant view. So you, you can never criticize anyone. Everyone's good. Your desires are pure and wonderful. You've got the, the, the human rights movement is full of this, right? Everybody has a right. I have a right to this, and I have a right to that, because I can't do anything wrong, because I'm morally pure. There's no foundation in that, because actually there's no intrinsic value in any person. Okay, so this is, uh, uh, <laughs> this is um, entirely uh, depressing. What's the alternative? There's one quadrant left, and that's here. That's Christianity. Christianity says we're essentially good. Uh, we're made in the image of God. Metaphysically, that's the big word for the, our essential nature, is we are of exquisite value. Every being from the moment of conception to the moment of death, no matter what the arc of your life, no matter where you're born, no matter your gender, no matter your choices, no matter how messed up you are, no matter how wonderful you are, no matter how bright you are, no matter how... Uh, how intellectually handicapped you might be, no matter how beautiful you are, no matter how physically handicapped you might be, no matter where you are on that arc, and no matter what your religion or your ethnicity or the color of your skin, everybody is made in the image of God and is infinitely valuable. Okay? And the evil is in our hearts. We are morally capable of extraordinary evil, as well as great love. Blaise Pascal, the French philosopher who mapped this out a couple of hundred years ago, said, we are the glory and the garbage of the universe. We're glorious because we're good and made in the image of God, and we're garbage because each of us is capable of extraordinary and petty evil. Okay, so you go, what does that have to do with how John, how, what this story in John's gospel? When Jesus approaches the woman who has committed evil, how does he treat 
which quadrant do you think Jesus places her in? Does that make sense? She is totally in this quadrant. She's good. She's valuable. She's exquisite. She's made in the image of God. But he's not naive. He's, he doesn't go, and you were just absolutely entitled to act out your deepest sexual desires to allow the full flourishing of your humanity. And who are these awful patriarchal men to tell you that you are to be denied sexual fulfillment with your neighbor? Okay, answer. He doesn't do that. What does he do? I mean, this is unbelievably profound. He says, okay, has anybody else sinned? Has anyone else, can, has anyone else dealt? Has anyone else purged the evil from their hearts? Nah. So they all toddle off. And, and, and it's interesting, the old blokes leave first. Why do the old blokes leave first? Because they're the biggest sinners. Well, I think if you're honest, as you go on, as you go on in life, you, you become more and more aware that you haven't purged the evil from your heart. You just realize, geez, that's an impossibility. When you're young, you think you can, you think you're perfectible, but just give it a few decades and you go, man, ugh, ugh, it seems to get worse. You look in the mirror and you go, there's still evil there. Come on. Okay. So, so what does Jesus do? He says, okay, you haven't purged evil in your hearts out there. Okay, so I'm not going to condemn you. But I'm going to say, go and leave your life of sin. Change your moral behavior. He treats her like a moral agent with dignity and value. And he sets her free to go and live a different life. He sees her as metaphysically glorious, but morally garbage. And that's you and that's me. Now, what does that mean when we treat each other like that? Well, suddenly you have compassion on yourself, for yourself and for others. Suddenly you realize everyone's just like you. We all struggle. We're all a mess. Christianity is not about a behavior modification program. Christianity is about offering us a way to purge the evil in our hearts. And how does that happen? Which we go back to our first question. What changes the woman? So let's assume she's changed. Let's assume her life is now purged of evil. She, Jesus, what, what changes her? Forgiveness? Yep. What changed forgiveness? Yep. What changes her? Gratitude? Yep, you're all, it's a very clever answer. I'm looking at a, like, a, just think up a level is a more basic answer. What changes her? Sorry? Love and acceptance. Yep, that's all great. Uh, that's wonderful. I'm, that, that's very true. I want you to think like a Sunday school kid. What changes her? Thank you, Jesus. Jesus. How is the evil dealt with and purged in her life? It's through an encounter with Jesus. So yes, the love and acceptance and the grace and the forgiveness, everything that she gets is right, but the key is she gets it from Jesus. It's something unbelievably 
powerful going on there. Jesus is the only one who can purge the evil from our hearts. And how can he do that? We'll come back next week. And uh, no. <laughs> it's the promise of the Bible. All the way through the Old Testament, God gave the law to Israel, like Deuteronomy 22, but he knew that it wouldn't change their hearts. But he said, there will come a time when I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to take out your heart of flesh, I'm, your heart of stone. I'm going to give you a heart of flesh. I'm going to give you the ability to love. I'm going to purge the evil from your heart. So you will no longer do evil because you won't be evil. And the way that happens is through an encounter with Jesus. Because what does Jesus do? He's the only truly innocent man who has ever lived. The only person who was both metaphysically, if you want to think about it in these terms, Jesus is the only one who actually existed here. Jesus is the only one who is both morally pure and metaphysically glorious. And what Jesus does is he says, I'm going to purge evil from you by drawing the consequences and the reality of evil into my own being. I'm going to draw it out of you and I'm going to absorb it into myself. And as I draw evil out of the world, I'm going to draw it. I'm going to let it do its worst on me. That's what happened on the cross in a way that, that is beyond human understanding in, in its implications and in how it could happen. The author of life, the one perfectly pure human being, God himself alone had the capacity, as it were, to say to you, if you want, I will absorb into my being every bit of evil in your heart and I'll give you a new heart. And I will go to work pouring my life into you so that from the inside out, you can go and leave your life of sin. And you can live the life that I lived of love, forgiveness, grace. That is God's plan to purge evil. It's by taking it from us, locating evil in his son, and then destroying evil in his son. The good news of Christianity is Christ became sin for us. He became evil for us and it destroyed him. But then he destroyed it in what C.S. Lewis says with a deeper magic. He rose again, said, no, evil doesn't have the last word. It's finally been dealt with. So evil in your heart can be dealt with by, you can try and deal with it yourself or you can ask Jesus to deal with it. And ask him to purge it and then you can learn to live that out from the inside out come to jesus now there is a there is a follow-on which i'm gonna i'm gonna do a little video so I'm, we're out of time now there's a psychological model to actually start to unpack the details of this and uh, i'll do that teaching online and post that online um i think i will i'll do that how exactly this works because we are out of time
and I want us to worship and I want us to come to Jesus to give you an opportunity to bring your life to Jesus afresh, to have an encounter with Jesus, the evil dealt with and a new heart and then to go and leave your life of sin. We, do you know the implication of that? You don't have to sin anymore. Like, you don't have to. You, you'll probably still choose to, but you don't have to anymore. Like, you and I can live lives of Christ-like love in the world. It takes effort, takes training, takes work, but it's possible. And we can fill the world with people who can live lives of Christ-like love. <laughs> where that evil has been purged and dealt with. And we can do it without utopian grand experiments that require us to murder millions to do it. We do it by laying down our lives in the same way that Jesus did to bring others to an encounter with him. And that's one life at a time. And you create a revolution of love. Is that pretty cool, hey? Let's pray. And then Hugh, I'm going to ask you to come up and we're going to worship together and pray. And Jesus uh, we come into your presence and just acknowledge that you're here. And like that woman, we want an encounter with you that changes our hearts. We bring to you those parts of us that are sinful, those parts of us that are evil, those parts of us that are petty and small and mean and scared and addicted. We bring ourselves to you and we say, Jesus, come and heal us this morning. Jesus, come and forgive us. Jesus, come and fill us with your power so that we can go live lives of love and be the women and the men that we really were made to be and that we want to be. Come, Holy Spirit.